Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. And so it, it has felt a little bit like that at church. You know, we're trying desperately to keep things going the way that we're used to doing them. Uh, and there's just been limitation upon limitation upon restriction upon restriction placed upon us. And we've had to come to the place where we go, well, maybe right now we're not supposed to be doing church the way that we're used to doing church. Maybe this is a time for us to have some new discoveries and actually do things in a different way. We've been forced really into isolation. And in isolation, God wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to us about how we can know God when we're alone, Um, because we can. In fact, we're not the first Christians that have experienced isolation. Right through the history of the church, Christians have experienced isolation of one form or another, and it's been incredibly important for many. It's been a turning point. Isolation can be the thing which transforms you profoundly. In fact, I would say that it will transform you profoundly, but it's up to you to decide how you're going to respond to isolation and whether or not you're going to let it transform you for good or for ill. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number of texts through history, a couple of books, one which was written in the 17th century, one which was written in the 18th century, one which was written in the 20th century. But first, we're going to look at a text that was written in the 9th century BC. And once we've looked at all of them, we'll be done. So to begin with, we're going to look at a passage out of 1 Kings chapter 19. And just a little preface, this story is about the prophet Elijah. Just before this story, he's had some great successes. He's had the trial on the top of Mount Carmel where he's called down fire from heaven to uh, show the power of Yahweh over um, the power of Baal to the prophets of Baal. And uh, he's prayed for rain um, <clears throat> when there was no rain in the land and brought about a, a storm. And so he's had these amazing successes. But then after that, <clears throat> he's... Um, he's a wanted man because, you know, even though he's been serving faithfully and having these incredible moments, he's um, going against the wishes of the king and the queen. And so they're out to get him. And even though he's had these amazing successes, he suddenly finds himself all alone. And it says, um, <clears throat> I'm starting in verse 8 of nine, uh, chapter 19, it says that he travels to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went outside and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
This is a story that uh, you may or may not know, but it's got profound significance for us about how we can hear from God. And I think it doesn't maybe quite say what you think it says on face value, because I, I, you know, I think we approach this story and we think, ah, this means that we think that God should come in bombastic ways. He should be in noise and clatter. Uh, and what we're realizing is that, in fact, God doesn't want to speak to us through the busyness of life and through all of the, the chaos that we experience. God only speaks to us in stillness. But I don't think that's necessarily exactly what the passage is saying, because we know that even though God mightn't be speaking to Elijah through the wind and the earthquake and the fire, in this case, there's lots of other cases in the Bible where God does appear in those things. Um, For example, with the earthquake, that same mountain, Mount Sinai, is where Moses met with God back in Exodus. And when God appears, it says that the mountain shook violently. And when God uh, comes in his Holy Spirit at the beginning of Acts, it says that he comes as a rushing wind, a violent wind. And, uh, and even the fire, well, we know that God appeared in a burning bush to Moses in that area, but he'd also come down in the fire with the test to Elijah, only a chapter beforehand. So God's not saying, you know, I don't speak to you in, 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 in the big things, the loud things, and that's why you must have acoustic worship. It's not, not like that at all. What he is saying is that you have known me in those ways. You have known me in the loud, big things, the big bombastic things, Elijah. But do you know me when you're all alone and there's no one around and you're not surrounded by, by, by the crowds when it's just you and you're feeling despondent? And, and let's face it, I mean, Elijah really is suicidal at this point. He is all alone and he is despondent, and God says, even now I can speak to you. So now let's move on um, to, the next, to the next book. The next book that I want to talk about is a book which is called The Practice of the Presence of God. And this is a book which was written by a French monk called Brother Lawrence, and he entered the monastery in Paris at the age of 24. And just reading an excerpt from his book, He says that we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. I went and visited my cousin Caleb when he was staying at a monastery and We might have seen some clips from that if you watched our Good Friday service uh, last weekend. And I was really struck by this guy, Brother Pietro, who we saw in the video, because Brother Pietro was probably the kind of guy that you would imagine um, if you think of what a monk is like. You know, he was he was mild mannered and um, polite and and softly spoken and probably a bit unassuming. But actually, I found out a little bit about his story. And before he'd converted to Christianity, he was actually in a German, I mean, he's German, so that's not surprising, but he was in a 80s new wave rock band. And there's photos of him with, you know, awesome jeans and <laughs> awesome hair. And he's like a cool musician. And then he had this radical conversion. And in telling me the story, he felt not that he 
had to go and become a monk, monk and join the monastery, but that God had called him and he saw it as a great honor to go into the monastery. And then I saw this video, which we actually played uh, last week, of him playing guitar only last year. And he's still an incredible musician. That was a piece which he'd written himself. And he's an amazing musician. And he's been there for like 30 years. And I think this talented musician has spent his time playing the guitar in this monastery in the south of Germany. And, and you know, no one knows what a talented musician he is. And, you know, he could have pursued his career in a band and, and maybe achieved some kind of notoriety. But instead he sits here with his incredible talent and plays his guitar and, and you know, and who appreciates it? And <clears throat> seeing that was such an affront to my sensibilities because I think, well, you know, if you've got, if you can do something, people need to see it. And I think we're all a bit like that because our lives are so watched now, aren't they? It's like if if you can do anything, it doesn't even have to be good. You can do something mundane and still film yourself and put a filter on it and let everyone watch it because you just want everything to be watched. Uh, we want we want to be known if we feel like we can do something good. I'm watching Brother Pietro and I'm thinking, well, he doesn't want anyone to to watch him play, but. Then I came to realize something, and I think it's captured in what Brother Lawrence wrote all those years ago. He said, or was written about him, sorry, that he, this is Brother Lawrence now, had always been governed by love without selfish views, and that having resolved to make the love of God the end of all of his actions, he had found reasons to be satisfied with this method, that he was pleased when he could take up a straw from the ground for the love of God, seeking him only and nothing else, not even his gifts. You see, what these monks, like Brother Lawrence and Brother Pietro, had realised is that someone was watching. Someone was watching. And they didn't need to have hundreds watching what they were doing in order to feel satisfied in, in the action because they knew that God was watching. And in that way, everything became this divine performance for the audience of, of God. Even bending down and picking up some straw from the ground was done as an act of love for God. In isolation, we're afforded the opportunity to reorient our lives around God. I think so much our lives can be done for the audience of someone else. You know, that can be just for the nameless void out there on the internet, or it can be for the people that we live with or the people that we work with. Um, it can be anyone that we're trying to impress. But now, in isolation, we are afforded the chance to go, is my life still worth something when, when no other people are watching? Because it is, because God's watching. And now we can start to do in our live our lives in a way which does it for God. And, and how much does that profoundly change your life if you start to do everything in a way that says, what would God think? Does this bring honor to God? You know, does what I'm having for breakfast bring honor to God? Does what I'm, I'm doing in the evening bring honor to God? You know, that, that that's going to profoundly transform your lives. And, and I think the way that Brother Lawrence would put it, is that it might be a bit clunky to think that way to begin with, to be always conscious of, of God, trying to bring God into every decision. But if you make a habit of it, and now's a good chance to do it, then it just becomes second nature. And, you, and you're just constantly living in that, in, in, in that well, in the, in the presence of God. Romans 14, <clears throat> verse 7 and 8 says, For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honour the Lord. And if we die, it's to honour the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. 
Okay. Let's move on now to the next book, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe was written by Daniel Defoe in uh, 1719. Now, it's a book, as you probably know, about a castaway, a guy who gets stranded on an island by himself, which probably seems pretty fictitious to us now. But at the time, um, there were a lot of people sailing around the world in all sorts of ships of all sorts of standards. Um, and so castaways actually was, was a reality of life. And, um, and so even though Robinson Crusoe is in itself a fiction, it's probably based on, on those kinds of stories that Daniel Defoe would have heard about. And I think the, the one that it's most attributed to is a guy called Alexander Selkirk, who is a Scottish sailor that in 1705 became stranded by himself on an island off the coast of Chile until his rescue four years later. So four years he was stranded by himself on this island. And that island is now called Robinson Crusoe Island. And so I just want to read you some excerpts from Robinson Crusoe, because if you've never read it, you, you mightn't be aware of the fact that it's actually got some incredible theological truths in it. And I'm just going to share a couple with you. Okay, so this comes in at a moment where he's basically set up camp on this island, Robinson has, and he's just, he's taking in the island around him. And he says, what is this earth and sea of which I've seen so much? Whence is it produced? And what am I and all other creatures, wild and tame, human and brutal, whence are we? Sure, we are all made by some secret power who formed the earth and sea, the air and sky. And who is that? Then it followed most naturally. It is God that has made it all. And I think that in these times of solitude, we can start to become a little bit more reflective about life. And I want to encourage you this morning to embrace that reflection because even though we're in isolation, you know, we're still connected with our computers and our phones and TVs and everything else. Um, and so I want to encourage you to embrace the solitude because there's so many ways that you can still, even at home, block it out. But if you actually embrace the solitude like Robinson had to, you'll actually start to you'll probably start to ask some very, very deep questions. And it's probably worth pursuing those questions because they can take you somewhere profound if you let them. If so, nothing can happen in the great circuit of his works, either without his knowledge or appointment. And if nothing happens without his knowledge, he knows that I am here and am in this dreadful condition. And if nothing happens without his appointment, he is pointed, has appointed all of this to befall me. So... His reflection has led him to realize not that God is maker of heaven and earth, not just that God is maker of heaven and earth, but also that God must have allowed him to get into that situation. And so our reflections, if we let them go far enough, should lead us to an appreciation of the all-powerful sovereignty of God. However you want to interpret it, God has allowed this pandemic to happen and he's allowed us to get into this situation. He's permitted it and he is doing something through it. And until we allow ourselves to be still, we, we, we probably won't see exactly what it is that he's wanting to do. Nothing occurred to my thoughts to contradict any of these conclusions. And therefore it rested upon me with the greater force that it must needs be that God had appointed all of this to befall me, that I was brought to this miserable circumstance by his direction. He having the sole power not of me only, but of everything that happened in the world. Immediately it followed, why has God done this to me? What have I done to be thus used? My conscience presently checked me in that inquiry. 
as if I had blasphemed, and methought it spoke to me with a voice, Wretch, dost thou ask what thou hast done? Look back upon a dreadful misspent life, and ask thyself what thou hast not done. Ask, why is it that thou wert long ago wert not long ago destroyed? He's realizing that he is actually a guilty man, worthy of punishment. Now, a lot of us don't really live with that with, with that sense. We don't really think that we're guilty people worthy of punishment. And I reckon that the reason that we don't think that is because we don't allow ourselves silence enough to actually listen to our consciences. Because actually the thing which is on our mind ringing the loudest, you know, our conscience is actually still there in moments of silence. You might only notice it when you're going to, you know, trying to get to sleep at night. And even then, you know, we can still drown it out by by. Uh, you know, having music going or listening to something to even drown out the silence then because we can't cope with it. I think one of the reasons that we can't cope sometimes with silence is because we are scared of what our own inner thoughts will tell to us about ourselves if we actually stay silent for long enough. But I want to encourage you to stay silent for long enough to actually listen to your conscience and see who you are and be reflective about who you are and the sorts of things that you have done and bring you to that place of repentance because there's hope and there's even hope for Robinson. Because fortunately for him, amongst the goods that happened to wash up on the island with him was a copy of the Bible. And at this point, he gets it out for the very first time and he decides to open up and read it. And he says, I took up the Bible and began to read, but my head was too much disturbed with the tobacco to bear reading because he'd also had some tobacco and he decided to have some of that as well. Didn't help encouraging that. And uh, at last at that time, only having opened the book casually, the first words that occurred to me were these, call on me. In the day of trouble, and I will deliver, and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50. You see, because he's gotten to a point of pure desperation, he's able to understand the profound need of calling upon the Lord. Unless we have true repentance, we won't have true deliverance. And I think now is an opportunity for us to have true repentance about who we really are and to really, you know, we're brought into a place where we really really have to call upon the name of the Lord. I think when we're alone, that's the, that, that can actually be the time when we need, we need to have that per personal relationship with God more, more than ever. For me, in my life, that's definitely been the case. The time when I think I've most come into a, a profound knowledge of my own individual personal relationship with God, not dependent upon my church, not dependent upon my family or my friends or anyone, just me and God has been in times when I was living alone. I lived alone in Sydney. And, uh, and it was in that time that I actually came to depend so much upon the word of God. I can remember my very first night living alone in Sydney. I lived alone in a little unit. And, I, you know, cities can be very lonely places. I had this sort of romantic notion that going to Sydney, I was suddenly going to be surrounded by millions of friends. But my very first night in Sydney was a rude awakening because suddenly I was alone. And I thought, well, what do I do? Uh, I didn't know anyone, so I just went to the movies by myself. That was the first time I, I went to the movies by myself, and uh, I went to see Star Trek. And I don't, you know, I don't usually go... In, now I like going to the movies by myself because sometimes I can't find anyone to go and see things like Star Trek with me. <laughs> but at the time, I felt very sorry for myself. I went to see Star Trek, and, um, and then I walked home from the cinema, and it was a bitterly cold Sydney night. Those who have lived in, in, in Sydney know how cold it can get in the city in winter. And it was freezing cold, and I thought... Okay, I'm just, you know, 
I had this long trek home and I thought, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to buy some Indian. I'm going to buy some butter chicken. I'm going to go home. I'm going to run myself a hot bath. I'm going to sit in the bath and eat the butter chicken. And then I went to the Indian restaurant and I realized that I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really afford the proper butter chicken. So I just had to get the sauce on rice. You know, you can ask for sauce, sauce on rice. And if you're lucky, as they're scraping the sauce, they'll still get a couple of bits of chicken in there. Uh, and so you sort of cheated the system a little bit. And so I, I, I don't really remember if this particular one had uh, any, any bits of meat, but the sauce itself was still pretty good. I took it home and, uh, and I ran the bath because there's no furniture in my unit. It hadn't been furnished yet. There was a mattress on the floor and a bath. That was it. And I sat in the bath and I started running the bath, but the hot water cut out about, you know, six centimetres in. And so it was just sort of, I was just sitting, you know, just obviously... You know, with you know, with 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 nothing on, sitting in the bath, um, just with just cold water up to there, eating sauce on rice, all alone. Um, and it's in those moments that, if you have any kind of faith, you begin to call upon it. And and it's then that I began to open the Bible and start to really meditate. You know, meditate upon it. If you can get into the habit of opening up the Word every day, and just asking God to reveal even one thing to you, then that can just be the thing that starts you off on the day and you can keep coming back to that and use that to just stay in a constant dialogue with God. And when you're, you know, in moments of loneliness, it's so important that you actually come to know God as your friend, as your best friend. And it sounds a bit corny to use that terminology that, you know, Jesus is your best friend, but he really can be if you allow him to be. And if you form the habits that actually build a good friendship. The last book that I want to talk about is a book which was published in the 70s called The Gulag Archipelago. And it was a, a book written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn who uh, was thrown into a gulag, and that's a, a, a Soviet labor camp, um, in 1945 because he had written um, a letter to someone else in which he had criticized Stalin. And it, it was intercepted and he was thrown in, into labor camp for eight years. And during his time in prison, he actually had an amazing conversion to Christianity. And he talks about the profound transformation that happened to him in, in, in camp, which I just want to read to you quickly. He says, once upon a time, you were sharply intolerant. You were constantly in a rush and you were constantly short of time. And now you have time with interest. You are surfeited with it, with its months and its years behind you and ahead of you, and a beneficial calming fluid pours through your blood vessels. Patience. You are ascending. Formerly, you never forgave anyone. You judged people without mercy. You praised people with equal lack of moderation. And now an understanding mildness has become the basis of your uncategorical judgments. You've come to realize your own weakness and you can therefore understand the weakness of others and be astonished at another's strength and wish to possess it yourself. The stones rustle beneath our feet. We are ascending. Of course, he realizes that not everyone who has a prison experience turns out like that. He says you have to make a choice about, you know, what you're going to let it do to you. But if you make the right choice, you can actually let moments of isolation give you incredibly profound perspective on the things that really matter. Colossians 3 says, Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honour at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. I think when you're taken away from everything, 
you have the chance to actually start to look at the things that really matter. And as Colossians puts it, it's the realities of heaven. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean that you just are always sitting around thinking about angels and um, and you know gold pavements, although you might think about that from time to time. But it's not just ex- that's not all it's talking about. It's talking about the things of heaven. Now, the things of heaven. What are those things? Well. The Bible says to us that after everything else has been washed away and everything everything has gone, that three things will remain, faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of those things is love. And these are the things, really, that should be most present for us after everything that has, has been stripped away from us. You know, I think as we've begun to go into isolation, we began to worry about all of the superficial things. It's certainly like that with for me, with my different jobs and things that I have to do, you know, I start to worry about oh, how's this going to work and how's that going to work and I'm going to miss being able to go to that. It's going to be tricky not being able to do that and all of those things. But actually, all that begins to melt away after a time and you start to realize that the thing that you really miss the most is other people and your relationships with other people, you know, and love really. Um, and you would you'd gladly give away all of those other things which consume our lives so much, if you could just get back those relationships that you have with people, you you get a heavenly perspective on things. And I think right now, as we are removed from the the madness of, of our lives, and suddenly we're put into this moment of, of solitude and isolation, we're actually afforded the chance to get what Solzhenitsyn was able to get, even in a horrible Russian prison camp, which is heavenly perspective. And I think the thing that probably a lot of us are wanting is not only just to get a heavenly perspective right now, but to work out how do we keep that perspective when everything goes back to normal. So just to finish off that um, story from First Kings with Elijah, when God says to him, what are you doing? Elijah replies, I've zealously served the Lord Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And then verse 18, God says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Okay, what does that mean? That means that Elijah thought he was all alone in Israel and actually God takes him in that moment and says, no, you're not alone. There's actually 7,000 other people like you. And that's the word that I want to finish on is that you are not alone. We are not alone in in as much as you know, we are connected through our church and, and there are amazing ways that you can stay connected through the internet, through the phone, through staying in touch with watching church on a Sunday uh, and making sure that, that we maintain those connections with one another, even though um, the temptation will be just to completely isolate ourselves. We're, we are not alone. We're actually all in this together. And so um, maybe you um, might like to look at the you know this opportunity as, as a chance to go, who can... who can I connect with? Who's someone that needs me to get in touch with them? You know, because that's our responsibility as Christian brothers and sisters. Actually, in a time like this, um, you know, never has having a community like this been more important than right now. Even though we can't do it face to face, it's actually incredibly important because we can make a phone call if we need to. We should. So have a moment to think about who you can connect with. But the other thing is, is that you're not alone because he is with you. I know some of you are going through very, very difficult circumstances of isolation, but God is actually with you and wants to relate to you as a friend. So we're going to finish now with a time of worship. And my prayer is that you would just stick around for this worship um, and just ask that God 
would go to that next level of friendship with you or that you would go to that next level of friendship with God so that, yes, you know Jesus, maybe when other people are around, but, but now is the chance for you to know Jesus as your best friend when it's no one else around, that's just you and him.